you would, turn with me, please, in your copy of the Word of God to John chapter 14. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're in the middle of a sermon series of topical sermons. Now, they're still exegetical sermons. We're working through portions of the Scriptures, but we're not working through a book of the Bible in the morning, at least in the evening. We're doing a series in the life of Elijah. But it's our normal practice to do that, to work through books of the Bible, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, and so forth. Um, but in the summer series, when so many of our people are in and, in and out for vacation, we do more topical standalone sermons with that kind of overall theme. And our theme this summer is the heart of God. What is God like? In His nature, in His being, last week we saw that God is triune. He is three, but He's also one. And He is one, but He is also three. The one undivided divine essence is there, one mind, one will, one God. And yet, in, in that essence, there are three uh, divine personalities, three separate personalities, three distinct personalities, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each of whom have full possession of the, the unity of the divine essence. And these three persons inter, interpenetrate one another in a beautiful relationship of, of love and community. And that was last week. And this, this morning, I want to think about how we come to know Christ, who God, know God in the incarnate enfleshment of God the Son in our nature during His earthly ministry and now at the right hand of the Majesty on high. We'll look at John 14. Now, before we turn there, um, let me give a few words of introduction. You know, um, when it comes to any endeavor we ever make at church in religion, or even outside of church, maybe you're here this morning and you normally you, you would say, I'm not normally a religious person, I come to church and occasionally, but I am spiritual but not religious. However you practice your religion, you have to begin and reckon with two great questions. What is God like and how can I know what God is like? Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're an atheist, you're a step even beyond the agnostic, and you say, well, I don't actually believe in God at all. Now, I'm going to grant you that assertion for a second. The Christian position actually is, you mean, atheists claim not to believe in the existence of God. The Christian God doesn't believe in the existence of atheists. He has so clearly revealed Himself in the majesty of the cosmos, its glory, the suns, the moons, the stars, the planets, the nebula, the black holes, the galaxies, so proclaim His majesty that you are without excuse. Not just the heavens, but the intricacy of life down here, these irreducibly complicated biochemical machines, living organisms, um, from molecules to mice, there's one less mouse, two less mice actually in the world after my efforts in the garage last night with mice traps. But there are these living organisms, right? And even right down to your own moral nature, as you look at your own heart, human beings all across this world, throughout the millennia, every nation, tribe, and tongue, we are united by the conviction that we ought to behave a certain way, that we should honor our elders, our parents, that we should respect and protect human life, that we should keep our promises, that we should honor our neighbor's property, that we shouldn't lie, cheat, or steal. And that's a kind of a universal human conviction, what you might call the conscience, that we live with knowledge of righteousness. And that very knowledge, conscience, con 
Science with knowledge. That knowledge witnesses to us of the moral law that God Himself has written on our hearts. And so God says, you might not believe in me, but I very much believe in you, atheist, and uh, um, you know much more about the God you pretend not to believe in. But even if I grant you your assertion this morning that you don't believe in God, right, for the sake of argument, you still have to reckon with the nature of ultimate reality. What is ultimate reality, and how can I know that? Is there ultimate reality? Is there an independent ultimate reality that gives meaning and significance to life on this earth? Or is it just the atomic structure of the universe, the laws holding things together, the law of entropy, most of all, by which the universe is cooling down, slowing down, and shrinking back into a great black nothingness? Don't think about that too much. It's pretty discouraging. But is that ultimate reality? Or is ultimate reality something that we create as living things, the struggle for life, nature's red and tooth and claw? Or as the Beatles said, all you need is love, right? Is, is survival and love, are they ultimate realities? And if there's no ultimate reality beyond those, why do we care about surviving and loving? I suppose it makes our brief existence between two nothings uh, more, more tolerable, but, but does it, why does it really matter, right? All these questions are important. Well, in our sermon this morning, what we're going to learn is that you'll never make sense of ultimate reality behind the back of Christ and trusting Him and looking to Him by faith. Let's read the Scriptures then, John 14, and we'll read the first 14 verses. This is the Word of God. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me also will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Notice Christ limits or connects the, work, the greater works that we do with the fact he's going to the Father, the pouring out of the Pentecostal Spirit. And what he, I think he means by that is the outbursting of the covenant community beyond the bounds of Israel. And even in Christ's time on earth, the, the kingdom stayed very much in the, within the geographic 
uh, confines of Israel. The ends of the earth didn't hear. And Christ is saying, because of my going to heaven, the Holy Spirit coming down, you will do greater work spreading the gospel as far as the sun shines. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so, the the big lesson that I want you to take home this morning in our sermon is that you know God by knowing Christ. That's ultimate reality. And you will never make sense of life, the burdens you carry, the problems you solve, the difficulties you face without faith in Jesus Christ. Bob Dylan famously said, you've got to serve somebody. Well, Jesus says, before you've got to serve somebody, you've got to trust somebody. And that person you've got to trust, Jesus says, is me. You've got to trust me. Now, we'll see in a moment that in these words, I think Christ addressed himself to every troubled soul in every troubled situation. But of course, he's speaking first and foremost to his disciples who are troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. The Greek word trouble is the word using, used for a body of water that is in a tumult, like you make a bath for your children, and it's too hot for their toesies. And you, you get cold water, and you pour it into the bath, and then you stir the, the water with your hand. And what a maelstrom, what a chaos your hand makes, right? That's the picture here. The, the, the disciples, their hearts are in a maelstrom of chaos and worry and fear. Why? Well, because Christ has just pulled the rug out from under their feet. Uh, he's kind of called into question all of the things they thought they knew for sure. They knew Christ was Messiah, and they were right. But they thought He was the kind of Messiah who would conquer His enemies, not the kind of Messiah who would be killed by them. They thought He was the kind of Messiah who would set up an earthly kingdom that would last forever. They didn't think He was the kind of Messiah who'd be crushed under the jackboot of Rome and butchered on a gibbet outside the walls of Jerusalem in darkness, having been abandoned by His Father. That wasn't the kind of Messiah they signed up for. And they're troubled. And Jesus says the antidote to trouble is trust. You've got to trust Me, Jesus says. Are you troubled this morning? Are you troubled by the state of our country? You ought to be. It's torn apart. It's not the nation it used to be. The political discord tearing our nation apart, the weaponization of our justice system. Now, if the Donald is guilty of a crime, he should be punished for it, but not only him. What about the rest of, the, what about the rest of our government? You can understand why so many senators and representatives want to take down the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie, cheat, or steal, or commit adultery, are pretty, you know, painful things to do your work under if you're a politician. Um, perhaps you have more down-to-earth reasons for feeling troubled. Perhaps your job is in jeopardy. You're worried. You're anxious about if you lose your job, what will you do for you, you know, 
money and food and benefits, medical bills. Or perhaps it's your children or your grandchildren. They persist in doing what children do, making stupid choices. And you can join the dots. You see where this is going. You've seen this movie before, and you know that it's not going to end well, and there'll be tears in the end before it does. And you're nervous for your children, and you're worried. And it's even now as you're sitting in this, in this sermon, the very mention of children, your mind's running there, and you're troubled. Or perhaps it's your health, the health of your husband, your wife, your son, as Nancy left our morning service to go to the hospice to visit Douglas dying of esophageal cancer. And anxious thoughts flood your mind, and you can't think of anything else. You're troubled. Well, perhaps you're here this morning, and you're you're doing the unthinkable. You're looking for a new church. You've been in the church you're in for decades. You were born in that church, baptized in that church, married in that church. And now the leadership of your church have made some horrendous decisions. They've signed up to the alphabet mafia to be their Lord and Savior, and they're, following, they're turning away from Jesus, and, and, and you're doing the unthinkable. You're leaving your church, and you're on the search for a new church home, and it feels weird being somewhere else, and your heart is troubled. And Jesus says to you, whoever you are, whatever trouble you face, whatever burdens you carry, the answer to trouble is trust. Trust me, Jesus says. It's breathtakingly arrogant for a man to say this. The holy arrogance of Christ. In the Greek, he puts himself right alongside his Father. Believe in God and in me, believe. The phrase begins and ends in belief. In the middle, he puts God and himself side by side with God. You can trust me, Jesus says, at the same level and with the same confidence that you trust God, your heavenly Father. Now, if Christ was only a man, he'd be a lunatic to say something like that. How can any man say, trust me like you trust God? I am worthy of that much faith. And of course, the answer is because Jesus is not only a man, he's also God the Son and is worthy of the full confidence and commitment of your soul this morning. Trust me, Jesus says. And we see here the personal nature of faith. Many atheists mock Christians. We kind of believe in like this flying spaghetti monster, no evidence for it whatsoever, and faith is just jumping away from the evidence and, and laying hold of what you shouldn't really trust or believe. Listen to some of the quotes from atheists or agnostics. Mark Twain said, Faith is believing what you know just ain't so. Richard Dawkins, the great Cambridge geneticist, said, Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of even perhaps because of the lack of evidence. No evidence for God, but you just believe in it. Or Christopher Hitchens, faith is the, is the surrender of the mind 
Uh, I actually would agree with him there, actually, but uh, in one sense. Faith is the surrender of the mind. It's the surrender of reason. It's the surrender of the only thing that makes us different from other mammals. It's our need to believe and to surrender our skepticism and our reason, our yearning to discard that and put all our trust or faith in someone or something. Now, he says, that is sinister to me. Of all the supposed virtues, he says, faith must be the most overrated. Or the other one of um, Satan's Rottweilers, Sam Harris, faith is not a virtue. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, they call themselves. Faith is not a virtue. It's gullibility masquerading as certainty. You have so much certainty, Christians, in your faith, but really you're just a bunch of credulous, gullible fools. That's what he's saying. And Jesus says, no, that's actually precisely what faith is not. Faith is not the refusal to reason. It's not the refusal to think. Faith is the determination to trust Christ above all else. It's trusting the person of Christ. It's deciding to trust Jesus above your eyes, above your ears, above your fears, above your brain. It's not disconnecting your brain, but it's trusting Christ more than you just trust your own capacity to reason. I heard a Christian apologist once reasoning with an atheist biologist, and the biologist said to him, um, it's the guy from where the master of the Australian, but I forget his name. But he was talking to him, and he said to him, are you willing to, the atheist said, are you willing to entertain the possibility that God doesn't exist? And the Christian said to him, are you married? He said, yes, I am. Are you willing to entertain the possibility that your wife doesn't exist? And he said, of course not. I know my wife. And the Christian said, and I know Christ. And that is the sum and substance of the Christian faith. Young people, listen to me now. It's not an idea to think or to know. It's not a doctrine to believe. It's not a life to live. It's first and foremost, Christianity is a, is a person to trust. It's trusting yourself to Christ. What is it about Jesus that you should trust? Well, there are three things. First of all, you should trust His Word. You can trust Jesus says, what I say, what I tell you. I will never lie to you. I will never deceive you. In my Father's house are many rooms, and the King James says, if it were not so, I would have told you. Or the ESV, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Both are legitimate translations. But Christ is saying, you can trust what I tell you about heaven and the glories to come. You can trust my word. That's one of the things about Jesus. Even his enemies said his teaching was extraordinary. Never a man spake like this man. Jesus, other enemies said. He taught with extraordinary clarity. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's counterproductive, but it's true, and you know it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard that it was said to those of old, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And instinctively, you know that's true. He's not denying self-defense, but he is denying a a tit-for-tat, spiteful spirit. Nature might be red in tooth and claw, but humanity ought not to be. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sorry, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more do you do than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I heard a a Muslim once say those words saved him. He opened up a Bible given to him by an American tourist in the holy city of Jerusalem, of all places. He was a a son of the head of Hamas, and he he went back to his house, opened the New Testament, and fell open at those words. He read, love your enemy. And he said, this is the voice of God. The light of nature rose up inside me. Allah says, hate your enemy and kill him. Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for him. And I just knew it was the voice of God. Christ taught with remarkable clarity. But he also taught with remarkable authority. Remember like that time early in his ministry when he goes to Capernaum? And immediately on the Sabbath day, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And with this authority, remember, he would cast out demons, not just in the ones and twos, but in their hordes, like the the demons who infested Legion. What is your name? Our name is Legion, for we are many. It's, It's the demons who use plural pronouns, by the way. We are many. And Christ, with a word, banished the demonic forces infesting this man's soul like cockroaches around the back of an old refrigerator in their thousands, and Christ banishes them with a word. With a word, he rebuked all manner of physical maladies, a man blind from birth, and Christ puts his hand on his eyes and speaks, and the darkness went away with a word. Another man crippled, Arms and legs wouldn't work. Had to be carried everywhere he went. And Christ healed him with a word. You raised the dead with a word. And he forgave sins with a word. Who can forgive sins but God alone, the Pharisees said. And Luke says essentially exactly. Your sins are forgiven you.
even more Christ's remarkable authority. He claims to be the judge of every human being, whoever has lived, whoever does live, and whoever shall live. That by His Word, the thoughts of your mind and the secrets of your life will be judged when you give an account to God. Every man, every woman, the rich and the poor, the great and the small, the kings and the commoners, will stand before the great white throne of judgment and their eternal destiny, your eternal destiny, my eternal destiny, will be settled by whether Christ says to you, come, you blessed into the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world by my Father, or depart from me, ye cursed. His word, you can trust me, Christ says, what I say. My word is true, absolute truth, at all times, in all places, for all people. It is true. You can trust me. I'll never lie to you. I'll never deceive you. You can trust also, Jesus says, my work, my word and my work. You can trust what I have come to do. In my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions, as the King James puts it. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now, Jesus here, he's not talking about, as Keith, I love Keith Green, but Keith Green's song, you know, he made heaven and earth in six days. He's been working on heaven for 2,000 years. No, Christ is not, you know, a heavenly version of Wolf Holmes, as wonderful as Wolf Holmes is, building mansions in heaven. Um, the going to prepare a place for you is speaking about his going to the cross, dying in your place for your sins, giving God the legal right to forgive you all of your sins and to adopt you as one of his sons and to bring you home to heaven where no sinner can enter without a just mercy. And Christ says, you can trust me to go and to prepare a place for you. And you can trust me to go and come back again and receive you to myself. But I'll not forget you. I'll not abandon you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. I will take you, and I will keep you, and I will keep you, and I will hold you, and I will never let you go. You can trust me. I know where you are. I know who you are. Like my friend, the Green Beret sniper, who went back in, he'd been a sniper in the Reagan, in the Reagan years down in South America working against the drug cartel. And then he, went, he re-enlisted after 9-11 as an older man, but he was a sniper in Afghanistan. And I've told the story before to some of you, but he was in this mission where he was, he was doing overwatch for Green Berets, talking to the tribal leaders in this town. And there was an ambush. And he was... Um, sniping, protecting his men as they got back onto the helicopter. But the fire was so great, there were RPGs everywhere. And uh, he sent his, his spotter, got back to the aircraft, but he had to stay and cover his men. And the aircraft couldn't stay because of the fire. So they bugged out, and he was left by himself. And he, he ran up the hill and over the hill, and there was a deserted old Afghan town which was abandoned. 
In the middle of the town, there was a well. On top of the well, there was a sheet of iron, metal. He lifted that off and looked down into the darkness and climbed down into the darkness of the well. Pulled the sheet back over again, climbed down, 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 beyond where the light shone into the darkness. Wedged his feet and his back against the well and uh, waited for two days. His legs were numb. How he could I have no idea. But he said the thought that gripped him at the bottom of that well, if I die here, if this is where it all ends, nobody will know where to find the body. My family won't know. I'm here alone by myself. But he's a Christian. And he thought to himself, but Christ knows where I am. Christ knows where you are, Christian. His work, you can trust him. What he has said, and you can trust what he has come to do, to live in your place, to die in your place, and to come to wherever your resting place is on earth and to take you home to heaven and to receive you and never to abandon you. You can trust him absolutely. And then thirdly, you can trust who Jesus is as a person. You trust his word, you trust his work, you trust him in his person. We're kind of going full circle, but Thomas, ever the bright bulb of the, Samar- of the disciples, says, Lord, Christ says, you know to where I, the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says one of the most comforting and remarkable things, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity is not an idea to think in your head or a doctrine to grasp in your mind or a life to live or a way to walk. In one sense, it's all of those things, and in one sense, it's none of those things. Christianity, first and foremost, is a person to know. It's beautiful. If, if, if the way to heaven was a way for you to walk, well, you'd always be worried, what if I stop walking that way, or if I leave that way, if I fall out of that way? I was talking to a friend the other night, and he, was, he was had a nightmare, not in this congregation. He had a nightmare. He was riding a motorbike through the the, this narrow mountain path he used to hike, and there was a huge, there was a few trees, and then there was like, you know, a thousand foot drop on the far side of the path, and he's riding this motorbike in his dream, and the, 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 it's one of those old motorbikes with the cone headlights, and it flipped back, and it's pointing in his face, and he can't see where he's going because the spotlight's on him, and, and, and it, he's blinded, and he's terrified of losing and going off the way over the cliff and falling, and if you think about Christianity as a way to walk, that fear will always haunt you, But Christianity is not a way to walk so much as a person to know. I am the way, Jesus says. The way to walk. I am the truth you are to believe, and I am the life you are to live. It's knowing me, trusting me. You don't get to heaven by doing. You get to heaven by knowing Jesus. You, you learn about God and the heart of God by looking to Jesus. What is God like? Archbishop Ramsey said, there is no unchristlikeness in God at all. 
Now, that needs some clarification. Because in certain ways, there are aspects of Christ's human life that do not reflect God the Father. And you think, well, think about it. Christ was a human being, God enfleshed in a body, and God has no bodies like men. There, was, there is a time and a place where Christ was, and there is a place now where Christ is. He's not here. He's risen. But His body has a GPS lo- coordinate. He's located in time and space. His body is not timeless. God's presence permeates all time and space. In that sense, Christ's body does not give you a picture of God. Going along with that, Jesus became weary and tired, and was at times completely exhausted, so tired he fell asleep in a boat, for crying out loud, in the midst of a hurricane. And the disciples said, Lord, don't you know, don't you care that we perish? And Christ is saying, you know, why do, don't I care? That you, why am I here? Six foot two, body odor, no deodorant in those days. What do you mean, don't you? Why am I here looking like a man if I cared that you perished? Of course I'm caring that you perished. But he was asleep. He was tired. He was crushed under the weight of his own cross. Yet the God of heaven is neither weary nor does he faint, and he slumbers not, the psalmist says. If I speak reverently, we're in this evening in the first part of 1 Kings 18 in the prophets of Baal, but Jesus had to use the restroom. And do you remember how Elijah's been a bit sarcastic? No, he's been a lot sarcastic with the prophets of Baal. On Mount Carmel, Baal's home turf, it was the holy of holies for Baalism, Mount Carmel. And uh, they're crying out, Lord, Baal, we cry to thee. Baal, we cry to the Mendelssohn Elijah. He gets more and more frantic, and Elijah goes, maybe your God is using the facilities. Maybe he's put his hand on those blower things, that and he can't hear you. Call him louder. I love that, that oratory. If you've heard it, it gets more and more frantic as the Baal. Baal, we cry to thee. Baal, we cry to thee. And then it stops, and Elijah steps forward and says, O Lord God of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God and I am thy servant. It's glorious. But God never uses the restroom. He doesn't need you. He doesn't have a bladder. He doesn't have bowels. But Jesus did. And there were times in Christ's earthly life when he was beside himself with emotion. Think about the Gethsemane as he's wrestling as a finite human being about to be cast into the fury of the infinite wrath of God, to be trodden underfoot in the winepress of the fury of God's wrath, and thinking, how can I cope? And I don't know physiologically, but his sweat glands surrounded by capillaries, his blood pressure so high, his body so fraught, the capillaries burst, and he sweats blood. God doesn't sweat, doesn't bleed. In that sense, Christ doesn't give us a picture of his of God. God never experiences stress. He sits on the throne. Around Him all is calm, all is bright. Christ was the victim of circumstance. God is sovereign over all circumstances, the author of them. And yet, in another sense, Jesus can say, He that has seen me has seen the Father. He gives us a perfect man-sized picture of God. Think about it. You see Christ on earth, and He's never in a rush. 
He's never poised. He's never rushing like me, late for an appointment. Always on time. Even when he's with Jairus, and they're rushing across the, through the crowd to Jairus' daughter who's dying, and Christ is minutes away when seconds count, and Jairus is stressed out. Christ is calm, and the woman touches his hem, and he turns around and says, Who touched me? And Jairus is saying, What do you mean? Who cares who touched you? My daughter's dying. And Christ has this calm. He's never, he's always poised, talking to this woman, forgiving her, cleansing her, healing her, and then going on to raise a little boy from his, a little girl from her deathbed. But he's not in a rush, and the angels are going, isn't he just like his father? Or think of his severity towards the proud. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You strain out a gnat, and you swallow a camel. Blind Pharisee. How he makes a whip and drives the money changers out of the temple, but then he gathers in the lame and the sick and the blind and the halt, and they come in, and the children, out of the mouth of babes, you've ordained praise for himself. He's so harsh with the Pharisees, deservedly so, and so gentle and tender, even the little children would run up and gather in his lap, and he would bless them, and the angels would say, isn't he just like his father? Or think about his availability. He can turn to a city that's rejecting him and saying to them, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. All who come to me I will by no means cast out. Or his patience toward his dim-witted, hard-hearted disciples, three long years of stupid questions. We don't know the way. Where are you going? It's like, but he's so patient with them, so kind, so tender with them, just like his father. Or the way he had this wonderful ability to look into a person's eyes and know what was really going on in their soul, what they really needed. The man from the, on the bed coming down through the roof, everybody knew what he needed. His legs were broken, arms broken, couldn't move, paralyzed. And Christ says, your sins are forgiven you. He saw a deeper problem a deeper bondage. And He knows you this morning. He searched you, each one. He knows you all the way down to the bottom. All creatures are naked and laid bare before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Jesus knows you. He knows who you are, where you are, what you've done, and He reaches out His arms to you. The way He touched the leper where you find the blind man in the crowd after he'd been kicked out of the synagogue or the temple by the Pharisees, and Christ found him in the crowd, and the disciples and the angels said, he's just like his father, isn't he? And the way he prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they have done. He's just like his father. And Christianity, I tell you, is about knowing Jesus. If you've everything else in Christianity, all of the doctrine, all of the ideas, all of the catechism, all of the confession of faith, all of the right answers, but you haven't got Christ, you've got nothing. It's Christ first, 
Christ lasts. Covenant children, do you know Jesus? I'm not asking, are you Presbyterians? I'm not asking, do you like coming to church? Are your friends here? Do you play with them outside in the playground? Do you enjoy singing the songs? I love singing Duke Street, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. When I was a little boy in school, we sang it in assembly, and I loved the tune, its majesty. But I didn't know Christ. I loved the great hymns of the faith. But I didn't know Christ. Do you know Christ? There's all the difference in the world between knowing Him and and knowing only about Him. And Christianity is about closing with Christ. Don't let your Calvinism be so constricted that it doesn't make you think you have to close with Christ. I'm not saying, can you do that outside of God's regenerating mercy? No, you can't. But I'm saying you must do that. You must come to Christ and close with Him and say, Lord Jesus, wash me, Savior, or I die. You're not a Christian. Come to Jesus. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed by sin, and again and again you fall into the same sin. It's how you deal with that. Not about white-knuckling your way to salvation. It's about coming to Jesus. Lord Jesus, give me the Spirit that I might walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. Lord, there are desires in my heart that are warring against you, and I need your help, Lord Jesus. There's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these in my heart. And I need your help, O Lord, or I will not inherit the kingdom of God. Help me. It's knowing Christ in those moments. That's where the power comes from. Not from within, but from Him. Or maybe you're a modern-day Daniel at the workplace, and you feel the alphabet mafia are out to get you, and they're behind the scenes plotting, giving you diversity pins to wear and other things, and you're just, you're, you're feeling you're, what's going to become of you, and you're worried, you're stressed out. It's about coming to Jesus with the words of Psalm 37. Lord, you say in your word, do not fret because of evildoers. Be not anxious because of wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Oh God, that's what you say. I feel like I'm the one withering, but you say they will wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Lord, help me to be a man who dwells in the land and cultivates faithfulness, not working behind the scenes with my own Machiavellian plots, but dwelling where you put me and doing good. Help me to delight in the Lord confident that you will give me the desires of your heart. Help me to commit my way to you, to trust also in you that you will do it. That's it with Jesus. Are you overwhelmed? Nancy's overwhelmed. So many overwhelmed with burdens, troubles, sickness, illness, fears, doubts, warring, turbulent hearts, and you come to Jesus to say, Lord, I don't know which way to go. I go forward, you aren't there. I go backward, I can't behold you. You act on the left, on the right, I cannot lay hold of you. But Lord Jesus, you know the way that I take. And when you have tried me, bring me forth as gold, 
And it's, it's, it's engaging with Jesus, with those words, with those promises, for all of the promises of God are yea and amen in Him. That's the power of Christian life. And you can have all of the theology up there, and it matters, right? Because you cannot know God as you ought. No. You cannot serve God as you ought unless you know Him as He is. Doctrine matters. But if all you have is doctrine, all you have is almost nothing. Because all those doctrines are to lead you to Christ. If all you have is the law, all you have is a source of condemnation. The law is designed to lead you to Christ and to leave you trusting Him, leaning upon Him. Because if you can't trust Jesus, and you won't trust Jesus, who will you trust, young man, young lady, old man, old lady? Who will you trust if you won't trust Jesus, whose person and whose word and whose work? Evidence is that He is the very Son of the living God and the sum and substance of ultimate reality. Let's come and pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for His power. Lord, I need to hear my own sermon, O God. You know how my heart is out of order when I'm not in Christ by faith, knowing Him, loving Him, serving Him. What fear, what anxiety, what mischievousness, O oh God, grips my heart when I forget about Jesus. How easy for me, who spends all week planning to tell people about Jesus, to forget meeting Jesus in the process, to lose Christ in the sermon, in the making of the sermon. If that can happen to me, O oh God, what, how will your people cope who spend so much of their time out in the world, a hostile world of darkness? Lord, give them grace. Give us all grace that we might know Jesus, in whom is life, in whom is truth, and who is the way to the Father's house. In his name we pray. Amen.